is a preparation for chanting the Puritas, which we do regularly. It's advisable to review the translations in your own language of the Puritas. Because we chant them often. If you're familiar with the translation, then it's always a, a reminder of the words of the Buddha, which have very useful meaning for us in our practice. One of the most famous phrases from the Puritas we chant each time, Asewana Chapalanang Pandita Nancha Sewana. It's a very simple instruction the Buddha gave, but profound. Avoid associating with fools and associate with the wise, panditas, pandits. A wise person The best kind of wise person, I suppose, is um, an arahant, fully enlightened being. But there's other ways the Buddha described a wise person, a sappurisa, the learned person. When we associate with associate with well-trained um, people in our lifestyles quite often senior monks, it could be a junior monk or it could be a well-practiced lay, lay practitioner as well. We gain so much. You gain the example, how they live, what they do, what they don't do, what they say, what they say, what they don't say. They're skillful in body, speech and mind. And especially if you associate with the wise over long periods of time, then you get an example that goes deep into your heart, <coughs> leaves a, an indelible impression. Even if you can't always remember the words of a sage or a wise person, just their being, their presence, which tends to be peaceful and um, calming on those around them. That can have a very powerful effect on us over time. This is one of the values of living in Sangha, is that we have other people dedicated to the practice and we all have our own wisdom. We of course all are developing more wisdom with training ourselves but already we can support each other through our efforts in the practice. They say a wise person in the Buddhist sense is someone who always directs us back to practice. They arouse energy 
through what they say. Arouse faith in the triple gem. Arouse energy and point us in the direction of developing sila, samadhi and panya. In Thailand they have a famous phrase that the enlightened beings whatever they talk about, even if they have to talk about worldly issues, they'll turn it into Dhamma because of the purity of their mind and the power of their insight. Their speech becomes speech pointing to Dhamma. Whereas the ordinary unenlightened person, even if they talk about the Dhamma, they somehow bring it back to the world because they're still under the influence of the mental defilements. So a wise person, when you meet them and you live with them, they have a certain beauty in their way of doing things and speaking. Uh, which is naturally attractive when the mind is peaceful. You're attracted to that because it's wholesome, it's good, and it leads us in the right direction. You're a true friend, a Kalyanamitta or a wise person. Sapurisa will not lead you astray from the path because they understand the path and the value of the path and its fruits so well for themselves then they'll encourage that in others. One of the ways they display that wisdom is through skillful speech. When we consider the Eightfold Noble Path, the eight factors, all of them are vital to be developed if we are to realize the fruits of the practice which we all aspire to. It's important to remind ourselves that each aspect, each factor of the path is essential in its own way. They all have a role to play in training the heart. And a big chunk in the middle of it is the, the right speech, Samma Vajra, Samma Gamanta, Samma Achiva, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And you notice how these are often the more neglected aspects of the path when people go to learn meditation on a retreat. Teachers are often explaining about you know, right mindfulness, how to develop samadhi, and people tend to aspire to that, this, the peak of the practice, as it were. They may give some attention to samaditi, the right view, and then go straight on to right mindfulness, right samadhi, and often seem to overlook uh, those three factors which relate to virtue, our behavior, particularly of body and speech. And it's important to remember that we can't overlook them 
or we shouldn't underestimate them. They all have their important vital role to play. Say with right action, you know, sometimes because it's so obvious you know, to the intention to refrain from killing and harming others, to refrain from taking what is not given, to refrain from sexual misconduct. They're so obvious, we've heard them so many times, we tend to overlook them. And I think for most of us it's very natural for us not to indulge in that kind of behavior in a monastery. A monastery is like a haven for safety, security in the world where people don't physically abuse each other, where they are, people are honest and they can be trusting of each other with their property and so on. It's so obvious that we often overlook it and perhaps why one, even one form of meditation, sila and sati, you're recollecting virtuous, the virtuous behavior of ourself, of others, and what virtuous behavior is. And every day we're refraining from killing, stealing, committing acts of sexual misconduct. And that's not a small thing in this world, because this world is a place that's very confusing and often not very peaceful. When we look at the end of the path, then often we feel disheartened. Because we feel, oh, I haven't attained any samadhi yet. My mindfulness is not very strong. I don't yet know the Dhamma. But just keeping these basic rules of right action every day. We're doing a great service to others and a service to ourselves. Because we're not creating any bad karma as long as we're keeping within the bounds of right action. That's a gift we are giving to ourselves for the future that will support us in the practice. If somebody who hasn't practiced right action in past a past life is unlikely to be able to live in a monastery very well. They won't be comfortable enough in themselves, peaceful enough to live in a place like this. Or even Refraining from those kinds of unskillful action is a huge act of kindness, compassion to ourselves and then to others that we often overlook because it's so obvious. And when we reflect on it, it can uplift us, particularly at times when we're feeling pressured by our defilements. And mentally, we may still have many unskillful intentions and un uh, and confused mental states arising in our day, but just keeping within the bounds of right action. We're doing something very good for ourselves and others, and we should be, we should appreciate that. It brings up a sense of happiness when we reflect on that, perhaps. Same with right speech and right livelihood. A right livelihood is often not explained in much detail in the suttas and the Vinaya. Say for a lay person, there's those kind of professions where you're exploiting, harming others, or 
selling alcohol or weapons or so on. For a bhikkhu, often it's explained as a bhikkhu practices right livelihood by practicing right livelihood. It doesn't say much, but really it means we're keeping the Vinaya, following the Vinaya. And the purity in the way we obtain our livelihood, our requisites. So at one point the Buddha mentioned you're not hinting or scheming, you're always planning how to get more requisites from the laity. Being one who's content with what comes one's way. Practicing contentment, non-greed, respecting and having compassion for the laity so that we're not a burden or pressuring them with endless demands. The right livelihood is again something we often overlook, that we are living this life, we're not asking anything from anybody. We appreciate the support we get and often we get more than we need, especially this day and age when the material wealth of the world is such that people do have enough to share, even for summoners, bhikkhus. But the important thing is we're not expecting it or burdening people with our demands. And as long as we're doing that every day, then we're practicing right livelihood. We follow the Vinaya, we study it, study it, we learn it, we practice it. And again, this is a great benefit to the world. There are people living in the forest simply with few wishes, not burdening anybody or demanding anything from anybody, dedicating themselves to developing the, the Noble Eightfold Path or the end of suffering, and also maybe helping others in that as well. This is something very special and beneficial to the world. And again, we often overlook it. Perhaps right speech, the practice of right speech, is one that does come up more immediately in our daily life because we live in a community and our speech does have an impact on our practice, and often very directly. Your right speech, or, or our speech, whether it's right or wrong, is reflecting what's going on in our mind. So it's an area which many people struggle with, and we all have to put effort into practicing right speech, as it's so, so much a part of our, our daily practice, and how we interact with the world it reflects on that. So the Buddha gave many instructions, both in the Vinaya and the suttas, about how to practice right speech and its, the importance of its role. As we know, when he first taught his son, Rahula, the first thing he told him was about the value of honesty. He pointed out that if we can still lie, then we're capable of doing any kind of evil act because you can always lie to cover it up. And it's just such a, it's like a, a huge crack or leak in our sila if we can still lie, because we're always able to break precepts or do shameless things if we can still lie to cover them up. So it's an important area to really become clear in from day one in the monastery is to try and really dedicate yourself to honesty. And maybe in the past, living in the world, working in the world, we haven't always been 
so dedicated to honesty because the standards, the values of lay society are not always clear or impeccable. But in the monastery, it's actually a relief. You can be honest about your faults, your strengths, what's happened, what hasn't happened. And leading on from that, the Buddha talked to Rahula about the importance of reflecting on our speech and our actions frequently, before, during, after, as a way of regular developing wisdom around speech and actions. Always reflecting before you say something. Is this going to be of benefit to myself, to others, or will it afflict, hurt, in some way, myself or others. And as you're speaking, is this a benefit or will it afflict, will it cause pain? And then after you've said, reflect again. And the way our minds work, we think a lot, so often our thoughts are so fast they come out quickly and we aren't fully aware of what we say at the moment, but at least we can reflect afterwards and that's still a useful way to train speech, to review what we've said through our day. Another thing the Buddha pointed out is that when we develop mindfulness as an ongoing practice, then one of the benefits of that is that we become able to remember the conversations we've had, and often conversations we've had a long time ago as well. The words we said, the words somebody else said, because we were practicing mindfulness, paying attention. But to train in this, often it's a good way to practice, something I used to do for many years in my early life as a monk, and I still do to a certain extent, is to review what I've said through my day, starting from when I got up in the morning to the end of the day. Obviously when we're on retreat, There might not be much said at all, even though we're still thinking and verbalizing our thoughts internally. But when we're living with the community, there will be those times of interaction with the laity, with other monks. So it's a good way to learn about yourself, to learn about how your mind is operating by reviewing what you've said. And the guidelines, not only to be honest and to consider what's beneficial and not, but also you know, look at the, the intentions lying behind our speech, become more familiar with the state of mind lying behind our speech. Now the Buddha encouraged us to speak that which is true, honest, and obviously that which is promoting harmony, it's non-divisive, to speak that which is gentle on the ear, pleasing to the ear, not to use harsh words, abusive words, swear words, and to say that which is beneficial, useful, to avoid frivolity or useless idle chatter. These are the guidelines when you do review your speech to see was it falling under those guidelines. Even then, there's more refinements to the practice of right speech. The time and place is a is a huge factor. 
especially as you stay a monk longer and you know more people, know more monks, you know more lay people. You have to be able to be able to adapt to different situations in, with your speech, to be mindful and reflective enough to know what's appropriate in a situation, when to speak, when not to speak. And the truth alone is not always enough in the sense you sometimes it's better to stay silent than to speak the truth if it's the wrong time, the wrong place. And if you meet different people in the course of your day, you know, each person you meet, you, as you practice more mindfulness, get to know how to be more still and quiet in your own mind, then you're aware how different people are at different places in their life, in their practice. At one moment you're talking to someone quite in quite a friendly, jovial way, and they may, that might be quite appropriate, showing kindness, supportiveness, and then the next moment you meet someone who's got a lot of stress, suffering, and you have to quickly adapt. Maybe it's not appropriate to joke with that person or to even say much, you know, even to sometimes just the pleasant, the pleasantries of human interaction, it's not appropriate if someone's very stressed. Sometimes we just have to be very patient, quiet with that person. So we have to have a certain amount of flexibility and adaptability with our speech. We need the mindfulness and then the reflectiveness just to see what's appropriate at each moment through our day. And also to be able to listen. Yeah. A big part of communication is listening to what people have to say. As we practice more and become more aware of our of our habits, of our character, then you'll see a big part of right speech is also just right view and right resolve because what we're thinking will come out in our speech. Lumpo Cha used to say, you know, be careful what you think about regularly or frequently because it'll very easily come out in your speech. So if you notice that you're say, being irritable and short-tempered with other people or sarcastic with other people or you know, when you want something you're being very pleasing to people but when you don't need anything you're ignoring them. You know, these different situations you notice from your own thinking first what leads to what. And if you keep thinking in a certain way that you're keep falling into aversion, ill will in your thoughts, well, sooner or later it's going to come out in your speech. Or if you're jealous of someone, and you might keep finding ways to put them down, if you don't put them down to their face, then maybe you talk to someone else and you're always referring to the person you're jealous of or envious of and putting them down behind their back, and so on. So we learn a lot from our speech, but then we learn even more maybe from our, the thinking mind, the mental, internal conversations we have. can even observe how we cause ourselves a lot of stress by, as we attach to more negative ways of thinking, and we're, you know, we're creating 
additional extra suffering for ourselves in different situations where maybe nobody else is involved at all. Just the way we verbalize our moods, our feelings, as different things go, come up in our life. And we can, you know, we can easily develop akati or bias in our mind, either through anger or greed or fear, by thinking in a certain way over and over again until it's just habitual. You notice you know, how easy it is to become habitually uh, negative about different things, different ordinary daily experiences that come up. We can always turn to a certain negative way of thinking. Uh, and as we practice more mindfulness, we'll become more aware of that. You notice may have a certain habitual reaction. Why is that? Because it's come up before, we just get caught into the habit. And that's a lot of, a lot of our suffering comes from that. As you meditate more, develop more formal sitting and walking meditation, then you become more, it exposes it, it reveals that. So you hear often newcomers to meditation, they blame the meditation for this. They say, well, I meditate, it makes me more anxious or more worried or more angry. But really, it's just reveal, revealing to them what's there already. And so we have to be very patient with that. But we also have to be actively changing the way we think, the, the verbalization that's going on in the mind. Sometimes we have to be strong with ourselves and teach ourselves not to think a certain way. In the end, nobody else can do that for us. We have to do it ourselves. But you notice the value of this, the benefit is, well, if you're more careful about the way you verbalize your thoughts and you choose to abandon the more negative ways of thinking and promote more wholesome, skillful ways of thinking, well then this will come out in your speech, your actions. Sometimes we have to literally teach ourselves, so if you have a habit of speaking negatively about something, about other people, about the world, about yourself, and sometimes you can sit down and think it through and bring up the opposite. You replace the negative view, the negative way of thinking with something positive as an exercise. To think about some of the good things about a particular person you may not get on with or a particular situation you don't like. Try and sit down and consciously think where is the good in this? Or think about oneself, if one is becoming more negative, more depressed in oneself, well, practice thinking about the good that one is doing as an exercise. Just think it through, verbalize it, make sentences in your mind. One of the supportive factors for you know, right speech, right action is something that's not immediately 
talked about in the Eightfold Path, but sounds similar. It's Sama Karawa, translated maybe as right respect. Often in Thailand, in the monasteries, they talk about a monk. They say this monk practices well because they have Sama Karawa, meaning they know how to respect the other monks. And that's not just the senior monks, although it's normally that's the way you show respect is for seniority because it's a hierarchical system, but also respect for other practitioners. So that may be monks of the same vasa or junior to you. But samakarawa, you, know, you write respect, one actually shows respect in one's actions, verbalizes it in speech and looks to you know, promote that quality in one's heart. And this isn't a, you know, just trying to brainwash yourself, but it's seeing the value of promoting that quality as a way of training yourself to respect that which is worthy of respect. So we can respect anyone in, say, in this monastery, on the level everyone has come here with uh, as an act of renunciation, letting go of their uh, lay life, some of the comforts, money, family, other things that they're used to. Anybody who's come into a monastery on that level is worthy of respect. And then the efforts we all put into the practice, we all put effort every day into following the Vinaya, meditating, training ourselves, serving the Sangha, helping out with chores and work, and so on. There's plenty to respect. Obviously it's most profound, most powerful with senior monks. So we're blessed that we have many senior monks come to visit us and sometimes we go and visit other senior monks as well. And that's the first way if you want to hear a good Dhamma talk and you show respect. If you show disrespect then it's unlikely that teacher will want to say much. They may, but yeah, it's not the best environment if people are not respectful. So we have ways in the monastic training we show respect. We're um, gentle in our behavior. We bow, we hold our hands in Anjali, we listen, we don't interrupt. Um, we even have certain kinds of body language. We don't stand towering over a senior monk or barge in front of them. You know, but it's the way the Buddha taught is, you know, we, we always wait for senior monks, walk behind them, take their lead. But the Buddha wasn't impractical either. He said if two monks come to the toilet at the same time and they both, uh, one is senior, one's junior, you know, it's the one who arrives first gets first go at the toilet if they need the toilet. So it's not an inhumane, impractical system. But in the average, ordinary situation, you, know, you, you defer to the senior monk, you show respect. But this develops a very beautiful way of behavior. And again, it's a good karma for us. It's developing, it's a gift to ourselves because if we show respect to others, then that respect will come back to us. You know, not that we want it or seek it, but it's just a natural karmic result. If we're honest with others in our speech and our behavior, well then others will be honest with us. 
if we're polite, friendly to others, then others will be friendly to us. And, you know, it's, this is how karma works. So these are, these are all supports for our practice. So sometimes we need to take the lead from those who have practiced more than us, those who have been in the Sangha longer than us. You see how they behave, what they say, what they don't, what they do, what they don't. This is immensely valuable for our learning experience in the mon monastery. The Buddha used to praise any bhikkhu who talks in a way that promotes the practice. A talk that arouses energy in developing mindfulness and meditation. Talk that arouses renunciation and relinquishment, letting go, rather than you know, clinging on, looking for more, more material wealth or more fame or fortune, more this, more that. He praised monks who promote sila samadhi panya through their speech. This is an area you can review every day. How am I encouraging the practice or not? It's not that we all have to become teachers preaching at each other, but just the subtle ways we influence a conversation or the way we relate to other people. How supportive are we of the practice? The Buddha said when we practice this well, then the effect is like, is, it brightens our mind and it can brighten the minds of people around us. He said, even brighter than the, the brightness of the sun or the moon. He gave that much value to it. You know, if one encounters somebody who can speak the Dhamma well and arouse faith and energy in the practice, there's such a value to the world. That's why our teachers, all the different teachers we've had over the years, you know, their speech arouses interest in the Dhamma, arouses faith, arouses energy. When they come to visit or we go to visit them, then we always have a certain buzz of faith because we want to practice more. Obviously, we have to deal with when we're not with those teachers. We have to learn how to arouse that same buzz within ourselves. And one of the best ways to do it is using right speech, arousing effort in the practice. What we read, what we look at, what we talk about, and then ultimately what we think about, this is all determining our level of faith and effort in the practice. Sometimes, maybe when we're at the bottom of the line, just beginning our practice, we might feel sorry for ourselves or feel left out. We may look at monks at the top end of the line and we think mm, it's easy for them, they get all the attention, everything's smooth, they make all the choices and decisions. But it doesn't really work like that. You see the well-practiced monks, you know, the practices that they've taken on, the right action, the right speech, the right respect, as well as you know, meditation and insight, you know, they've developed that and they keep it right through their life. It's not like it's just a show for others or just a way to get more 
convenience or more support or more requisites. These are qualities that they develop and they become ingrained. So you notice that you know, very senior monks will still be polite. They'll still be uh, unselfish in their behavior. If you just observe, they tend to show that. They'll tend to be respectful even of junior monks. You say from the time of the Buddha we have the great example of Sariputta when he was being admonished by the novice because his robe wasn't on properly. Still being very gracious, very humble, respectful even to a little novice because the novice was speaking the truth and he accepted that. Oh, you're right, and my robe's a bit untidy. Thank you for pointing it out, lifting his hands in Angeli. Even a great teacher like Sariputta, who is considered like you know an army general in comparison, can still be humble when a fault is noticed. Maybe his mind is completely faultless. It's gone beyond the kilesis, free of suffering, but he's still wise enough to understand the social convention and the Vinaya and the importance of it. All the way Sariputta related to Moggallana, they're always encouraging each other in the practice from the time they were lay, laymen, friends. Both of them maybe of similar level of faith and understanding, so they both had a great disenchantment with the world. When they were young men, even though they did attend, they went to school and they went, had entertainments and friends, but gradually growing weary of that, looking for the spiritual life. They were looking for teachers who could show them the way. So they made you know, one of the greatest kind of friendships, displays of friendship you can have is they made a, a pact that whoever found a wise, enlightened teacher first would um, immediately tell the other. They got their priorities right. They weren't leading each other astray, saying, oh, let's forget the meditation and go and do something else. They were promoting right practice in each other. So when Sariputta Upatissa encountered Venerable Asaji, having heard the Dhamma, the first thing he did was go and find his friend Moggallana, a great sense of loyalty, compassion for his friend. Even once they were monks, they had their own disciples, they were great teachers in their own right. They still related to each other with great respect, friendship and uh, appreciation of each other's good qualities. So like the tame time when Sariputta was meditating and bashed on the head by the stubborn yaka with a huge club. He was meditating but he was so deep in his absorption and so mindful, he just reflected on the pain as just painful feeling arising, passing away. Didn't take ownership of it, just noted it mindfully, let it go. So afterwards, Venerable Moggallana came and asked him, didn't you see that yaka coming? No, I was meditating. It hit you on the head, didn't you feel anything? Oh, well I had a, a little headache for a while, so Moggallana praised Sariputta, you know, he's so mindful, even a 
huge yucca smashes him on the head. He just mindfully carries on meditating and observes the waitana, the dukkha waitana rising, passing away. He said he's so mindful, so restrained in his practice. And then Sariputta returned the, the praise, Oh, Moggallana, you're so amazing, you can actually see a yaka. You saw that yaka hitting me, you knew what happened. That's amazing. So that sense of mutual respect, respect and mudita for each other. You know, this is friendship, it's expressed in speech, in action, and no doubt and just in their mental state, the way they dwell, they dwell with friendship towards each other. You might say noble friendship. So the way we behave on the outside, our speech, our actions, has a huge impact on our life in the robes, how we relate to other Sangha members and then how we relate to ourselves. And ultimately it comes from our intentions and how well we train our mind. We have to put that effort into learning to watch our mind, observe it and see where the more unwholesome mind states come up and the harm they do and learn to train to observe them, let them go. Train to the point where it's just habitual to have, you know, say, the Brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. So they become your default modes rather than some sort of far-off qualities you have to struggle to find when there's a problem in your life, but just develop them so they've just become normal for you and you have so much joy from that and they'll be so helpful in helping you to meditate peacefully to calm down quickly so that you can contemplate develop true insight and you use all four Brahma Viharas supporting each other if you're not quite sure how to measure your practice of the Brahma Viharas we'll just Consider the sort of daily experiences you have, what we call the worldly winds, the lokadamas. Gain and loss, praise and blame, status, loss of status, and then pleasure and pain. And just observe how your mind is reacting. You know, if you say in the food line or with the distribution of requisites or the distribution of chores or something, you know, do you feel discontent and feel someone else is getting a better deal than you. Just the ordinary experiences you have, see how your mind reacts, whether you can maintain metta or equanimity, say, with the different ups and downs of the daily life in a monastery. Your life in the world is never going to be perfect, perfectly fair, perfectly equal. You know, we, we do our best, but it's impossible. The great, you know, the most powerful ideals of democracy and compassion and all the different things that inspire us. You know, the reality is life is never perfectly equal and nothing is going to be, we're not always, not always going to get quite the same deal as the next person because our karma is all different. So learn to see how your mind reacts to the differences in experience 
you know, the ups and downs of our own experience and then comparing with others. Notice how much suffering is when you compare with others all the time. You know, they seem to always get it easy or have a good deal. Why do I always have the bad deal? Just see how destructive and harmful that way of thinking is to you. This is, you know, this is where we learn on a daily basis how to train our mind and really develop the mind. See how when we get discontent, we may sort of make our plans. You know, when I'm senior, then I'm going to get everything I want and take it easy. It's hardly a, a way that's going to arouse faith and energy in your practice if you think like that. Maybe develop a sense of compassion. That when I'm a terror, then I'm going to do my best to help the other monks be sensitive, kind, compassionate to the other monks. There's always different ways we can think in each situation, different intentions we can bring up, different ways we can use our mind. We have to learn what is helpful, leading, conducive to peace, peace of mind, to wholesome states arising, to insight, and what is not. What is not, we have to learn to abandon, to be patient, equanimous and see the value of keep returning to goodwill, compassion and mudita. If someone else seems to be doing well, we'll have mudita for them. Praise them, be happy for them. But don't just, you know, if you feel things are not going well for you, don't just stick with your negativity. You'll be honest in your appraisal of yourself. If you've come this far, then you've already got, developed many good qualities and nobody is just solely worthy of criticism and being put down. We all have a mixture of good and bad. With our love of honesty, we have to be able to assess and see that. Where there is a fault or a weakness to try to be honest and accept them, this is something I have to improve. Where we have improved, then we can also witness that and accept that. This is something I've learned not to do, not to say, not to think. And we can praise ourselves for that. A story I tell many times about how you know, somebody who's developed these qualities, they write uh, Sama Karawa, Sama Waja, Sama Gamanta, that's all. These very wholesome qualities through their life. Lumpo Sangwan who's a very peaceful monk who's considered to be an enlightened arahant. And he went to visit Lumpo Cha on many occasions, had great respect for Lumpo Cha, and Lumpo Cha had great respect for him. He had great respect for Lumpo Mahabua, and Lumpo Mahabua had great respect for him. And they expressed this in their speech. But Lumpo Sangwan was always a very humble Monk. He always spoke as if he didn't know anything, he wasn't a great teacher, he wasn't like Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Mahabur. Even though we believed his level of attainment was exactly the same, but just his character was full of great humility, respect for others. And monks would go and see him, he may be like 80 to 90 years old, 
getting quite sick at the end of his life, often in a wheelchair. Junior monks go about and he'd treat them just like equals. He wouldn't be looking down on them or expecting anything from them. Very friendly, give them a lot of time. I remember one time we went to see him at his monastery and his back had collapsed, the spine had collapsed, so he couldn't sit up without a whole set of straps and ropes, a whole contraption that he sort of hung on to as he sat up. He must have been in great pain and very tired by the way he looked, but he kindly gave a whole Dhammadesana to myself and a group who went to see him. We didn't ask for that because we felt sorry for him, but he obviously was very bright and energetic in his mind and very brave in his practice, so it didn't bother him, his own condition. He gave a whole Dhamma talk, sitting in this contraption that made him look like he was in, must have been in great pain. He was always like that, a very giving monk, very humble, respectful. He always said, I don't know anything. And yet he obviously knew a lot, a lot more than the rest of us. He knew how to keep his mind peaceful. He never complained, he was never negative about others, always very praising, appreciative of others. He talked, he talked about Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Mahabua in such great glowing terms. It was nice just to listen to him talk about these other monks. Remember at Lumpur Cha's funeral he came I had the privilege of looking after him and we got a wheelchair for him, moved him around the monastery in a wheelchair. All he said was, I want to go and see Lungta Mahabua, who was also there. I just want to go and pay respects to a, an arahant, such a good monk. So he's always encouraging these qualities in the people around him to respect those who we should respect, to be kind, compassionate, patient, enduring, and so on. These kind of qualities just oozed out of him in his speech and his actions. And there was that time when he, when he arrived at Wapapong once when there was some more junior monks receiving him. And they didn't realize he was a senior monk. They thought he was what they call in Thailand a lungta, like a granddad, maybe somebody who's just ordained for a few years, having retired from their lay life. They assumed he was just a junior monk, even though he was old. I don't know why they misinterpreted the situation like that, because he was a very famous meditation master with thousands of disciples. But anyway, he arrived at Wobbapong and the monks receiving him called him Lungta and were speaking down to him, unfortunately, without realizing that he was much more senior to them. And in the end, he realized that they'd really lost, got lost in their own conceit. So he got down and bowed to them with people in shock and horror. And why is this happening? But he was just showing his lack of ego, his respect. He, was, he said he was bowing to another bhikkhu in the robes. He was completely unmoved or unfazed by their lack of respect and he just showed them respect as if he was just a one Vasa monk, even though at the time he was about 65 Vasas. It's amazing. He didn't complain about that situation, he just went away. He never mentioned it again. But it left an impression on everybody's mind who was there. 
because it's a sign of somebody who's practiced and those qualities have gone right into their heart. They don't do things just for show, that they, they actually live and breathe the Dhamma. You know, their ego is gone, so there's no sense of being hurt or disrespected or insulted. You may be aware of those conventional qualities. The conventional truth is clear on, but it's not bothering his heart. His heart is free from greed, anger and delusion. That's the way he was. When it was his birthday, all the monks would go to his birthday celebration at his monastery and he'd stand or sit at the, in later years, he'd sit at the gate in a wheelchair and every monk who came in from Bindabar, he'd put food in their bowl. So on his birthday, it was, he saw it his job to support every monk with some food. That's how he practiced right to the end of his life. So there's plenty of good examples around for us to look, to see. And our job is to say, emulate in our own way. We all have our own character. We have to learn you know, very basics, right action, right speech, right effort. These are things we practice every day. And they gradually they're shaping our heart, the way we think, the way we resolve our mind, the way we act. And you don't have to doubt, you know, um, get caught in the, the doubts about, you know, how's my practice going? I don't seem to have got very far in my meditation. I don't know much. You can be sure the way karma works. If you just put effort into just keeping the precepts, putting effort into your practice in whatever way you can, you are developing good karma. It will lead to good things now and in the future. So we say it's our own inheritance for ourselves. It's what we, it's our gift that we're creating for our future self. Because there is no self, we don't have to take it personally in the sense, you know, I'm doing this for me. But that's, in practical sense, that's what's happening. We're creating the causes to keep supporting ourselves in the practice all the way through to Nibbana. So, uh, I'll leave you with these uh, thoughts for your reflection tonight. Maybe we can carry on meditating for a while longer, dedicate it to the Triple Gem, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs>